This is Our American Stories, and it's our special 4th of July edition. And where else to turn but David McCullough? He's written several books on the period. John Adams was astounding, the HBO series, as good as it gets. But 1776 is my favorite, because it's not about a particular person. It's about a year, and what a year And you can't do the 4th, a show about the 4th, without talking about 1776. It's just not possible. And so we're going to talk about that book, or actually McCulloch's going to talk about that book, because we're going to bring you sound from a great speech he made at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And that's one of the places this all started. And you got to add Philadelphia, and you got to throw in Virginia, because if you don't take a few people from Virginia, you got nothing. The best of the North and the South. And in this talk that McCulloch gave, he started things off by explaining to the audience and to all of us that history, well, it didn't have to happen the way it happened. One of the hardest things it seems to me to convey in teaching history or writing history, and one of the most important to convey, is that nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. We're so often presented history uh, as this following, this following, that, and we're meant to get that straight because it will be on the test on Wednesday. And we begin to think after a good many years of that process that that had to be that way, and it never did. Uh, Events of all kinds could have gone off in any number of different directions for any number of different reasons anywhere along the line. Just as in our own lives. Just as in our own lives. He also, before digging into 1776, the story about the year, he talked about this thing called the past. The other point I would like to make is that um, if you think about it, nothing ever really happened in the past. Nobody ever lived in the past. They lived in the present. It, um, it was their present and different from ours, and that's important, how different it was. But they lived in the present. Washington, Jefferson, Adams, they didn't walk around saying, isn't this fascinating, living in the past? (laughs) Aren't we quaint in our funny clothes? (laughs) And they didn't know how things were going to turn out. I don't think one can overemphasize how important that is. They don't know how it's going to turn out. They don't know what happens in the long run any more than we do. And it's often very easy to look at it from our vantage point, vantage point, the present, our present, and say, well, why didn't they do this, or they should have done that, or those people shouldn't have given up what they did, and so forth and so on. And that's, uh, to a large extent, the hubris of the present, that somehow we are superior. Somehow we know so much more than those poor folks back there living in that poorly lighted time. And I love that line. They didn't know how things were going to turn out. In many ways, McCulloch points out before digging into the speech, the folks back then, as he studied them, were superior to us. In many ways, I think the more one involves oneself in that other time, the more one comes to conclude that in many ways they were superior to us. They were strong people. And they were used to hardship, used to hard work, 
used to the fear of epidemic disease, the fear of, of the unknown, because so much about the epidemic disease then was unknown. What caused it? When will it go away? Uh, the, the, uh, in, the inevitable inconveniences and discomforts of that time that we, we don't know at all. Even in peacetime, life was a struggle. And particularly in New England, one grew up in New England expecting, learning from experience to expect the worst. So when we read about what hardships the soldiers who fought in the Revolutionary War endured, we shouldn't by any means say, well, they didn't mind it too much. Of course, they suffered terribly, but they were very tough people. And soldiers and farmers know about weather. And soldiers and farmers are who we're talking about, since almost all the soldiers were farmers. And it's so true. I mean, I get stuck on a plane for an hour, and you never hear the end of it for me. And these guys, I mean, imagine how they had to travel when you read about the retreat of Washington soldiers and that walk. I mean, a walk, a walk from New York Harbor to Trenton. (laughs) Walk. Try that sometime in the cold. Give it a shot. And then we get to some of the personal stories. And here's where McCulloch's just fantastic. And he dug through a lot of letters and a lot of personal effects. This one really caught his attention and he began things there. Abigail Adams. One of the most poignant lines of all the letters that I've worked with over the last 10 years is from Abigail Adams, written that same summer of 1776 to her husband who was off in Philadelphia serving in the Continental Congress. Posterity who are to reap the blessings will scarcely be able to conceive the hardships and sufferings of their ancestors. She knew it then, and she, alas, was right. We don't know what they went through. We don't, well, we don't, thanks to the public schools, they don't teach this stuff anymore. But McCulloch is, and and David McCulloch provides such, such a service to Americans, and we've responded. We buy his books, we eat them up. And it's just a shame that history isn't taught this way to kids because if you don't teach it as something ancient but something in the present, it comes alive. When we come back, more from David McCullough, July 4th, 1776, for the hour.
This is Our American Stories, and this is our special July 4th edition, brought to us by Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life. And if you aren't lucky enough to go to Hillsdale, or you already went to college, well, Hillsdale can come to you. Nobody teaches the Constitution better. Go to hillsdale.edu and look for their Constitution 101 course. It's terrific. And now back to David McCullough, and he's spending some time at the Massachusetts Historical Society talking about his book, 1776, and about that fateful year. And in 1776, well, nobody knew what they knew then, as he pointed out before, but this ended up being the most important year of this nation's soon-to-be young life. 1776 was the most important year of the most important conflict in our history revolutionary war without the revolutionary war there would be no united states of america the revolutionary war furthermore was the longest war in our history except for vietnam eight and a half years and it was the bloodiest war in our history except for the civil war 25,000 americans lost their lives now that doesn't seem like very much by our terms but by their terms it was catastrophic 1% of the population, 2,500,000 people in all of the 13 colonies. Were we fighting such a war today, we would lose over 3 million people. 3 million. That's big. I mean, World War II was about 400,000. That's a big war. And things didn't look encouraging in the early days of the revolution. There was a night in the winter of 1776, early in 1776, just up the way here on Brattle Street at what we call the Longfellow House, which was Washington's headquarters, and ought to be so understood as to be that as well as the Longfellow House, when Washington was tossing and turning at night, unable to sleep, as he recorded in a letter. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep, Few people know the predicament we are in. So it isn't just that we don't know today what they suffered then, what they went through then, how bleak, how dark, how how in many ways hopeless it appeared, but he's saying that few people then knew. Oh, and they didn't. And that's how he started off chapter one, by the way, the siege in 1776 with those very words. Who were these people? Now, who were they? Well, we have a pretty good idea who George Washington was. But in my view, we need to know more. He's not the marble man. He's not unapproachable. He's not um, aloof or arrogant or unkind or stuffy. He's a leader. That's foremost. He He isn't an intellectual like John Adams or Jefferson. He isn't a great strategist or tactician like Napoleon. He isn't a passionate, persuasive speaker like Patrick Henry. He's a leader. He has absolute integrity. He has, for lack of any better word that I know, character. He has phenomenal courage, which is the first thing required in a leader because everything else depends on that, and it's both physical and moral courage. He is steadfast. He will not quit, and he never loses sight of what 
the war is about. And he conveys this courage and self-control and dedication to the glorious cause of America, as they called it, in such a way that others feel deeply his feelings and will follow him through hell. Not everyone was courageous, though, as McCulloch points out in this clip, and not everyone was a hero. Not all of them were heroes. They deserted in droves by the hundreds. Many, when their enlistments were up, marched right off to home as fast as they could go, by the thousands, both from here and later on in December when Washington was retreating across New Jersey and couldn't spare a man, let alone 2,000 of his men, who just walked away with no shame whatsoever when they were most desperately needed. And many went over to the enemy. We mustn't forget that. Hundreds of them went over to the enemy, right here, just as many of the enemy came over to our side. There was a lot of back and forthing, often depending whether there was food enough to keep them going or clothes enough to keep them warm. British sentries froze to death here around Boston in that winter. The only losses, the only American fatalities on the, during the attack at Trenton were two men on the nine-mile march after they had crossed the Delaware, on the nine-mile march down to Trenton to, to, to hit, hit Trenton the next morning, who, who died on the march because they froze to death. And yes, they did, many of them have no shoes, and yes, they did leave bloody footprints in the snow. All true. I mean, can you imagine that? What a way to go. You're walking and you die because you're cold. And those were the only fatalities in that particular battle. That particular infamous battle, by the way. But let's hear more about Washington. And again, think about what he just talked about. Washington had these characteristics as a leader. Integrity, character, courage, physical and moral. Steadfastness of purpose. Never lost sight of what the war was about. And that was victory. And conveying always the courage and dedication to instill that same passion in at least enough of the troops to actually win. That is a real difficult group of characteristics to find in one man. And without Washington, I think McCulloch would, would say this too, there's no country. George Washington was also a man who when these awful nights came down on him, and there were many of them far worse than those he suffered here, in Cambridge, who would sit down and write long, long letters back to his home at Mount Vernon to tell the people there how he wanted the wainscoting done of the new addition to the house, what color paint he wanted used, uh, what, what sort of siding should be uh, on the new kitchen. You read them and you think, wait a minute, what's going on? And they're extensive letters and every detail is important to him. And then I thought of something that happened during the Second World War when Eisenhower was given command of D-Day and he went to London to take over in the headquarters on Grosvenor Square. Churchill said to him, Ike, you've got to, you've got to find something to do, something to think about, a hobby uh, other than your work because the burdens you're going to be under are going to be so enormous that without some sort of diversion you will crack. And he urged 
Eisenhower to take up painting, which Eisenhower did. Churchill said, it's helped me a great deal, and I think you'll like it. Well, Eisenhower loved it. He, and he, he became pretty good at it, not as good as Churchill, who was superb. But I think that Washington's imaginary uh, leap from the winter of 76 here in Cambridge or the winter, uh, the December at the end of 76, uh, retreating across New Jersey, I think that that was for him what the painting was for Churchill and Eisenhower. It helped him to keep from cracking. What insight. And by the way, if you've ever visited Mount Vernon and that part of the country, this beautiful home along the Potomac, not far from Washington, D.C., just a short bicycle ride, actually. If you ever wanted to do it, it's a great ride. And what a beautiful place. And Washington leaves this place not for days, not for weeks, not for months, but for years. There was no Twitter. There was no email. He just left everything. And he was one of the richest men in the country. And again, these stories aren't told anymore. It's just Washington owned slaves. That's it. That's it. And by the way, no context that the world, for the most part, lived in slavery. The world. And when we come back, more of this great talk. It's David McCulloch at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And the book, 1776, which is about the year 1776. And the seminal characters that made this country, that created this country, that gave this country its birth. And again, as always, this hour brought to us by Hillsdale College. And if you'd like to hear this at any time or share it with friends, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, our special July 4th edition, and we pick up where we left off with David McCullough's talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society about his book and about the year 1776. Here he talks more about George Washington and about a few other men, who they were and where they were from. He bore a burden of gloom and doom such as I don't know of any man carrying in such a position of tremendous responsibility. His health was phenomenal. While people all around him, virtually everyone, was getting sick with something or other, he never was ill once that we know of in that year. This is also true of Henry Knox. Henry Knox 
was a Boston bookseller, a great, big, fat, gregarious young man that everybody liked and who was impossible to ignore. He, um, he had the idea to go to Ticonderoga and bring back the guns left there after Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain boys had captured the fort in May of the early of, of 1775. The guns were still there, but Fort Ticonderoga was over 300 miles away in upstate New York, and he proposed to do this in the midst of winter, and he did it. Now, what's so interesting is that Henry Knox was 25 years old. Henry Knox knew no more about the military or artillery than what he'd read in books. Nor did Nathaniel Green from Rhode Island, who was all of 33 when they made him a general, knew no more about the military or being in the army or fighting a war than what he'd read in books. But you see, that was an age when people believed that reading books wasn't a bad way to learn things. <laughs> That's the spirit of the Enlightenment, the faith of the Enlightenment, vividly personified by these two men who, like Washington, had no formal schooling beyond about fifth grade, but who never stopped reading. By the way, we learned that about Orville Wright and the Wright brothers, too. Not heavily formally educated, no college, but my goodness, self-taught, read everything. So more about these men who fought this war and who authored it. It was a young man's war, a young woman's war, a young cause. Washington was 43 when he took command here in Cambridge. We see the old fellow in his white powdered hair and the awkward teeth, the founding father, the, the elder statesman. He wasn't that yet, not for a very long time to come. And he was the oldest of them. Jefferson was 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, 33 years old. Benjamin Rush, who in many ways is one of the most interesting of them all, uh, the famous physician of that time who was the first to urge that people with mental illness be treated humanely. Benjamin Rush was all of 30 years old when he signed the Declaration of Independence. They're young, they're inexperienced. They've never fought a revolution. No people had ever successfully revolted against the mother country. This country had no army, it had no navy, it had no money, and it had no prior experience. And by the way, we weren't just inexperienced. This country was really small. And they're all coming out of this tiny population of 2,500,000 people, 500,000 of whom, as you might recall, were held in bondage as slaves, black men, women, and children. And, of course, there is the glaring incongruity that many of them were themselves slave masters, including George Washington. They postponed that issue, as they would postpone that issue again with the Constitution. Indeed, and again, that's the part of the American history lesson in classes around this country, public schools, colleges, that most people focus on in the curriculum now. But back to the story. Did the Declaration inspire the soldiers? All men are created equal. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
To what extent did the Declaration of Independence inspire these soldiers? Very hard to know for certain. It's absolutely inspired people like Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox. It certainly, it certainly was a, a powerful uh, morale moment when Washington ordered that the Declaration of Independence be read aloud to everybody uh, in New York, all of the army in New York, when the, when the uh, document itself reached New York in its full text. And when that happened, I want to read you what Nathaniel Green said. Excuse me, I wonder if I can find it. I want to tell you, I just tell you that what happened was that Knox said, now how we play our parts will affect generations and generations to come. That's an extremely important observation because Knox is saying how we play our parts and this idea that they are cast in roles unlike anybody has ever been cast before. In one of the great dramatic turning points in history permeates all that they say. Washington, Adams, Knox, Green, all of them except when you get down in the ranks. You don't read that much. There, isn't no, there is no mention that I know of in the memoir of Joseph Plum Martin, a 16-year-old army volunteer, soldier, foot soldier, who kept a wonder, wrote a wonderful memoir later. There's no mention of it in the diaries of Jabez Fitch, another Connecticut farmer with eight children. No mention of the Declaration of Independence that I know of in the papers of my favorite Joseph Hodgkins, who was a cobbler from Ipswich. They may have indeed been, right, been fighting for the Declaration of Independence and its noble ideals, but they don't talk about it much. They talk about winning. They talk about surviving till the next day. They talk about doing their part, and they talk again and again about the glorious cause of America. And that gets back to the very opening of this, which was McCulloch saying nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. And if these guys hadn't done what they'd done and had the vision they had, there may not be an America. Probably wouldn't be. McCulloch then explained what the fight was all about when it started. Keep in mind that when the soldiers who went out to face the British Redcoats at Lexington and Concord leveled their muskets on the enemy, they were not fighting for independence nor were they doing so at Bunker Hill. They were fighting in their view, in their hearts and minds, for their rights as freeborn Englishmen. It is only in 1776 when this idea of independence takes hold, and it's only after a, the text of a speech given by the King of England before Parliament in October arrives here in Boston, in Cambridge, on the very first day of the new year, January 1, 1776. And word of that text of that speech spread through this town, spread through Boston like wildfire, and out into the countryside. Because the king had said that the Americans are in rebellion, and that their leaders are traitors, and that we are going to crush that rebellion. In other words, it wasn't just going to be a brief family squabble. Washington wrote his wife Martha 
that he would be home by Christmas. That thought all passed, by the way, on the first day of January 1776. And when we come back, the final installment of this terrific speech at the Massachusetts Historical Society by David McCullough on his book, 1776, about the year 1776. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is our American Story, special July 4th edition. And now we come to the close of David McCullough's speech at the Massachusetts Historical Society, talking about the year 1776 and his book, 1776. And what did David McCullough come away with, having studied the letters in these days of these great men and women? When one finishes reading about this year, When you live inside the diaries and letters of the people who were there, who saw it, who fought it, who survived it, you come away with several very powerful feelings that I think, for me at least, will stay with me for the rest of my life. One is that they they did everything for us because the words of the Declaration of Independence would have been just that, words on paper, had it not been for them. That when we celebrate the 4th of July, we shouldn't just be celebrating those noble ideals. That's important for sure. We shouldn't just be imagining the 1776 of the Broadway show. All those, those eminent leaders in their magnificent 18th century attire, parading around on stage like somebody in a costume pageant. That was part of it, and a very important part. But there are these other people, mostly long forgotten, but by no means have their, have their traces been eliminated. They are there. We can read what happened. We can hear their voices in their own words. And back to George Washington, McCullough went. And how did Washington learn to do what he did, particularly as it relates to matters of war as a general? Among Washington's greatest advantages was that he learned from experience. Experience had been his teacher all through life. He was on his own from age 16. And uh, I can't think of an example where he didn't make a mistake that he didn't learn from that experience. He had no brilliant advisor. The most seemingly brilliant general in the Continental Army at the time was Charles Lee, an Englishman who had joined the the American cause. And Lee was an eccentric, extremely ambitious, many people feel, and I'm tempted to say dangerously ambitious man, who who probably knew more of tactics and 
and uh, strategy than Washington did, and who could see the problem quicker, more, the solution to a problem more quickly than Washington. He saw immediately, for example, that to defend New York was impossible if you had no control over the rivers and the harbor. In other words, without sea power, you can't hold this place. But Washington uh, learned, and he learned as he went along. And he saw he was a very good, had a very good eye for ability. He saw in Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox that these were two young men of extraordinary ability. And they were New Englanders, and he heartily disliked New Englanders. He thought, he thought that the New Englanders were dirty and, and unruly, and they had this awful idea that they should think for themselves. <laughs> uh, but he overcame that bias and saw in Knox and in Green the ability that he was looking for. And Knox and Green were the only two general officers who stayed with Washington all through the eight years of the war. The only two, these two New Englanders that he picked out at the very beginning, the first summer, 1775. And there you had it. Experiences as a teacher, and then he had a great eye for talent. And this is what every entrepreneur does in the end. This is what the Wright brothers did. And this is how people build big businesses in this country. Experience is the teacher and a great eye for talent. McCullough then went on to talk about Nathaniel Green and, of all things, polls. Nathaniel Green just uh, bowled me over. He's, he's an amazing man and a wonderful writer. Um, there's a scene where he would, in one of the family accounts, where his um, brother describes him sitting by the, he was a, had an iron forge in Rhode Island, and... Uh, uh, he was a big, strong fellow, but had a limp from a childhood injury, just as, um, as uh, Henry Knox had two fingers of his left hand had been blown off in a hunting accident. Both of these men would have been excluded from military service as being physically uh, unqualified in a later day. Also, I can tell you, if there had been polls published every day during the Revolutionary War, it would have been over right away. <laughs> um, and a great point. And now McCulloch digs in deep to one of the great moments in his book, and that's the escape from Brooklyn. And he talks about a man named Glover. I thought that um, the escape from Brooklyn, which was really the Dunkirk of, of the revolution, was one of the most hair-raising uh, stories I've ever read. And uh, the, uh, it's a marvelous combination of both providence entering in in dramatic ways that you couldn't put in a novel because no one would believe it but really happened and the character and ability of John Glover and his Marblehead fishermen John, the men from Marblehead one of the best some of the one of the best units in the whole fighting force uh, were the, that those people were the ones who amassed that makeshift armada and got the troops 9,000 troops off of Brooklyn in the midst of night across the East River to turbulent currents, because it isn't really a river at all, it's a tidal strait, and without losing a single man. And to have navigated that, to have done that, was absolutely brilliant seamanship. Those boats were so low, they brought off all the horses, the cannon, everything. They were about two inches, the gunnels were only about two inches above the water. And then it was 
Glover again, who brought Washington, took Washington across the Delaware. Uh, th- that interests me tremendously. If you know anything about the East River, it's like a never-ending riptide. It's unbelievable. Because, it's again, it's not really a river. Here's one of the great stories in 1776, one we all know, well, kind of. There's one point when the French, when the, the uh, uh, Continental Army is retreating across New Jersey, when all they have left are 3,000 men, probably a fourth of whom are sick. Most of them have, have no winter clothing. They've not done nothing but lose and lose and lose again for months. 3,000 men and the whole future of the country and all that the Declaration embodied was riding on those people. So what Washington did when all hope was lost is what we often have to do when all hope is lost. He attacked. He, he came across the Delaware, struck at Trenton, and history changed because we had beaten them. It wasn't a big battle. It wasn't a grand European-style conflict, but it changed history because it changed what was in people's hearts, their morale, their attitude. And then he struck a few days later in the first week of 1777 at Princeton and won again. And here is how David McCullough closed things out. I've been at this now for 40 years, and I've been very fortunate in my subjects. And I've loved the work I've done on every book I've written. But I have never enjoyed so much what I've been doing as working in the 18th century. Bill and I were talking about this backstage before the evening began. There's something about those people, something about those people from whom we can learn more than we have any idea. And how fortunate we are that they did what they did. That's my talk. And that's what we like to do here in Our American Stories, take you back in time, or let others take you back in time, and us back in time. I wanted to read one last piece, the end of 1776, because in the end it all does get back to Washington. But in the last analysis, it was Washington who won the war for American independence. The fate of the war and the revolution rested on him and our army. The Continental Army, not the Hudson River or the possession of New York or Philadelphia, was the key to victory, and it was Washington who held the army together and gave its spirit through the most desperate of times. He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecision and indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment, but experience had been his great teacher from boyhood. And in this, his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. And we can learn one thing, no matter what we're doing and what we're chasing, just don't give up. Don't give up. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear this and any of our stories. And as always, this historical moment was brought to you by Hillsdale College. And you can go to hillsdale.edu to learn more about their great online courses.
our special Independence Day celebration, David McCullough. More after these messages. This is our American story, special 4th of July edition. And on this day in history, in the year 1776, the Declaration of Independence, declaring independence from Great Britain, was adopted by the Continental Congress and written by the 33-year-old delegate from Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, 33 years old. 33, authoring one of the best-known and profound sentences ever written in the English language. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was a novel and even revolutionary idea then that individuals have inherent human rights, that government must respect those rights, and it wasn't the author or gifter of them. God was, and it's still a revolutionary idea today. Imagine the places in this world where these words have no meaning, none. It could be half the planet. And so, 50 years to the day after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and on the same day in history, a remarkable and poignant coincidence took place that involved Jefferson and another of our nation's founding fathers. We'll hear about this great story from the Thomas Jefferson Foundation that also maintains his home, Monticello. In 1826, Jefferson, now 83, was invited to be the honored guest at a national celebration of the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, which was to take place on July 4th in Washington, D.C. His health deteriorating, he knew he would be unable to attend. Instead, Jefferson sent a valedictory message. Ill for several weeks, he had hung tenaciously to life, waiting for this cherished day. At nearly an hour past noon, Thomas Jefferson slipped quietly away. A few hundred miles north, a similar drama played out in Massachusetts. Unaware that Jefferson had died, 90-year-old John Adams uttered his dying words. Thomas Jefferson still survives. In an extraordinary coincidence of fate, Adams and Jefferson died 50 years to the day from the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Both of these founding fathers, once so close while fighting for birth of our young nation, had drifted apart politically and personally. 
They had not spoken to each other after the bitter fight for the presidency in 1800 in which Jefferson defeated Adams to become the third president of the United States. Let's listen to an excerpt from the PBS documentary American Experience, Thomas Jefferson, describing how late in life a common friend encouraged the men to write each other. They are a kind of odd couple who recognize in each other um, the values that are lacking in themselves and the correspondence that they, that they uh, uh, maintained between 1812 and 1826 uh, is probably the greatest correspondence between public figures in American history. It's a kind of elegiac correspondence in the twilight years of their respective lives. It becomes clear what they have in common is a recognition that each of them is not complete without the other. That Adams is a realist who is sometimes cynical and needs Jefferson's idealism to redeem him from that cynicism. And in the same way, Jefferson can float away into a somewhat unrealistic set of assertions, but he's got Adams there to ground him. In their last days, they were the last survivors of the Founding Fathers. And suddenly, they struck up a correspondence, which is one of the most moving in American literature. And they're talking about their invention, the United States. Some things disturb them, some things they're rather proud of. It was to John Adams that Jefferson wrote, I believe in the dreams of the future more than the history of the past. It was to John Adams that Jefferson looked to for a sense of history. It was to John Adams that Jefferson could express his profound appreciation for the spirit of 76, which lived in him until his dying day. I rejoice in the correspondence a mutual friend had told Adams when he heard that he and Jefferson had begun to write one another again. I consider you and him as the North and South Poles of the American Revolution. Some talked, some wrote, and some fought to promote and establish it. But you and Mr. Jefferson thought for us all. And next we're going to go to someone speaking at Jefferson's home of Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he was speaking there at the naturalization ceremony they host every Independence Day at the home of the author of the Declaration of Independence. How powerful and appropriate is that? And this man speaking adopted Charlottesville as his home too. He was originally born in Johannesburg, South Africa and became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1980. He was tending bar at Miller's Pub in Charlottesville and a local noticed that his kid could play some music. This kid could play some music. Music that will be played by the band that goes by his name. And if you don't know by now who we're talking about, it's David John Matthews, more commonly known as Dave Matthews. Let's take a listen to Dave about being a naturalized U.S. citizen and the different perspective it gives him. A first-generation American feels, uh, I, I think, and depending on when in your life you become an American, feels different in the way that it's very hard to to feel entitled about your citizenship if 
you weren't born a citizen. But for me, I'm an American because my parents came here and worked really hard and, uh, and I was lucky enough uh, to be connected to them and although I lived in different places and felt connected to different places, I feel a profound sense of belonging and responsibility to this country uh, because I just as easily could be somewhere else. And I don't think my life could have unfolded the way it did in good and bad ways, but mostly good uh, if I was not an American. And more than one million people from over 150 countries become U.S. citizens every year in this great country. Our special July 4th celebration. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and this is our special July 4th edition. We were just talking about Dave Matthews' talk from Monticello. And by the way, I went to law school at the University of Virginia. Alex here was an undergrad, and that's the university that Thomas Jefferson built. And it's a special place for me and my heart. And James Madison, well, he, he had a house not too far from Jefferson. And George Washington was right up the road. And without these three guys, oh my goodness, there's not a country. And then the warriors too. And some of the great intellectuals and warriors in the North too. And how the North and the South got together in this document and how they did what they did. Because they truly didn't like each other. They lived such different ways uh, and manners and, and mores. Just totally different ways of living. Uh, the, the South was just so polite and so structured, and the North was just so noisy. And yet they got along and fought a common enemy. And this has always been one of the great American attributes, that we could just get along long enough to then be left alone again. (laughs) And it's still a great American tradition. And now we're about to step into an extraordinary documentary from from director Alexandra Pelosi. You may recognize her last name. Her mother was the first woman Speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi. Her 2011 HBO documentary was titled Citizen USA, A 50-State Road Trip, in which she chronicled naturalization ceremonies from across all 50 states by interviewing these brand-new U.S. citizens. Let's start with a man and woman she interviewed who were from Russia, who are deaf, and who spoke through a translator. In America... They strive for removing barriers and discrimination of deaf individuals. We are given an equal opportunity. In Russia, it's an embarrassment. I could not show people in public that I was deaf. I had to keep it hidden. I love it that here in America, I am an Amer- I am in America and I'm so proud to be deaf. I am who I am and I love it. Being deaf is great. I'm afraid of nothing. I'm afraid of nothing. Next up is a woman who grew up under the communist regime in Hungary. My husband and I, we fled the communist country of Hungary. And it's not that it was very bad living under communist government. But now that we know how different another life, another side is, it was very bad. 
Under communist government, you had one choice to get a Russian-made car. You had to pay half of it up front, and when a car arrived, you haven't even had a chance to pick for a color. You hated a yellow car, but by the time you're supposed to pick up your car, if there was only a yellow car on a lot, you had to take it, otherwise your number thrown back for, five, for three years again. So for the rest of your life, you saved up your money for a car, and you hated a yellow car, but you're going to have to drive a yellow car because that was the only car available. Yep, not a lot of choice. And by the way, listen to Mike Rowe's story about Boris Yeltsin and pudding pops, or pudding pops. And how that changed his thinking about so much, and particularly about centrally planned governments and economies. Next up, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, herself an immigrant from Czechoslovakia, who became a U.S. citizen in 1957. Let's take a listen. My father asked for political asylum. And we lived in London during World War II, and the British were very kind to us. And then we came to the United States in 1948. And my father used to describe the real difference. He said, when we were in England, um, people were, couldn't have been nicer. They said, um, you know, your country's been taken over by a terrible uh, dictator. You're welcome here. What can we do to help you? But when are you going home? When we came to the United States, people were very, very nice, and they said, your country's been taken over by a terrible system, and uh, you're welcome here. What can we do to help you, and when will you become a citizen? And by the way, just for those of you who don't know about Czechoslovakia, the Albright family fled to England after the Nazis took over Czechoslovakia. After the war, they returned home to Czechoslovakia, only to flee again when communists took over the place in 1948. And Europe was just a mess. And when the Iron Curtain descended, so many people were living in tyranny all over again. And this, too, should be taught in history classes around this country, and it is not. Or in even colleges these days. Next up, let's hear from two men originally from Afghanistan talking about simple pleasures and rights that don't exist in some places outside of our country. You can take her hand and shake and kiss on the street, nobody asking you, what the hell are you doing? But it, if this happened in our country, you know, like everybody's going to be kicking over there. Yep. And now let's hear from a citizen of Iran talking about something that many take for granted. I stayed here because I'm a gay man. I cannot go back to Iran because of my sexual orientation. And I feel now that I'm walking here and I see people from different races, backgrounds, heterosexual, homosexual, are walking together without fear. is the most beautiful thing and most people don't appreciate what a great blessing it is. So well said. Next up, we hear from a man who was serving in our military as a non-citizen, that's allowed, and now, in this clip, is a newly minted citizen. Why would you join the military of a country you weren't born in? Because it's the best military in the world. What would the world be without the U.S. military? I think lost in chaos. Lost in chaos. What a great answer. Next up, Henry Kissinger. Former Secretary of State, naturalized in 1943 after his family escaped from Nazi Germany. Here he is talking about his life's journey in this country. I had to work in a shaving brush factory because we 
didn't have enormous resources uh, from the age of 16. And then I was drafted into the army. And then through a series of, uh, of circumstances, very few of which I could possibly plan, uh, I wound up as Secretary of State. Could happen only in America that somebody of foreign born with a foreign accent would emerge as Secretary of State. And Kissinger would later joke in this documentary that his younger brother had no accent because he was the Kissinger that actually listened. Next is a woman from Slovenia who talks about her early life there and how different her life is in America. I was 15 years old when I started working in a big factory. I was told I can't do much with my life. I love the free agency that comes being in America. The free agency to me means that nobody tells me what to do and what I can be and what I can become. I can make my own choices and I don't have anybody telling me you're not good enough. Is there anything about America that you just haven't gotten used to? Um, I guess what I'll never get used to is people complaining constantly about something. I know that the government, I know that the things are, you know, it's a little harder right now, but just the people constantly complaining. Nothing worse. Slovakia, that's where we're from next. The next person is from that we're about to hear from. A brand new American. Do you think she's living the American dream? I came here. I spoke no English. I had very bad education from Slovakia. And I came here and everything I wanted happened. Uh, I decided to come as an au pair. And I work in those beautiful homes. And then later on, I cleaned those homes. I was a cleaning lady. And then in the end, I sold a home because I became a real estate agent. And I worked for a great agency, and they helped me to become who I became. And couldn't happen anywhere else, only in America. They helped me to become who I became. What a great sentence. It's fantastic. And last but not least, here is a man from Portugal. I came to a country uh, with nothing. Our family came with nothing. We worked at it, and I bought a home, raised a family here. Kind of the American dream, I guess, you know, most people. I have a dog and a cat. <laughs> what do you do for work? I work for Ashland, Massachusetts, a small little community, and I'm in charge of the water division. Um, I work my way up, and I make sure the water's clean, pure, people can drink it. I make sure that we have no problems with it. What was the water like in Portugal? Well... I'll tell you, if you grabbed your jug and you walked a half a mile down to the river, you'd get it right out of the side of the mountain. Couldn't analyze it. And you had to go grab it every day, four or five times a day. This country takes everything for granted because it's just there. If you go to the countries like where I'm from, the simplest things aren't there. What are you going to do to celebrate becoming a citizen? I'm going to go home and I'm going to buy myself a flag for my house. That's another dream I've had, put an American flag on my front door. That's the first thing I'm going to, that's how I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to put a flag on my door, a U.S. flag on a pole. Now I can. That's how I'm going to celebrate it. Fantastic. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating July 4th. More after these messages.
I came to a country uh, with nothing. Our family came with nothing. We worked at it, and I bought a home, raised a family here. Kind of the American dream, I guess, you know, most people. I have a dog and a cat. <laughs> what do you do for work? I work for Ashland, Massachusetts, a small little community, and I'm in charge of the water division. Um, I worked my way up. And I make sure the water's clean, pure, people can drink it. I make sure that we have no problems with it. What was the water like in Portugal? Well, I'll tell you. If you grabbed your jug and you walked a half a mile down to the river, you'd get it right out of the side of the mountain. Couldn't analyze it. And you had to go grab it every day, four or five times a day. This country takes everything for granted because it's just there. If you go to the countries like where I'm from, the simplest things aren't there. What are you going to do to celebrate becoming a citizen? I'm going to go home and I'm going to buy myself a flag for my house. That's another dream I've had, put an American flag on my front door. That's the first thing I'm going to, that's how I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to put a flag on my door, a U.S. flag on a pole. Now I can. That's how I'm going to celebrate it. And that was that man from Portugal, and we're, we're talking about Alexandra Pelosi's 2011 HBO documentary, Citizen USA, a 50-state road trip. And all she did was interview people who'd come to this country and sworn their oath of allegiance and become citizens. And so let's continue with some more clips, because we just can't help ourselves. We're celebrating July 4th, and there's no better way to do it. My dad and my grandfather insisted that I go to Jersey City to see the induction ceremony there because that's where my grandfather swore uh, his oath of allegiance to America. And he barely learned the words. He had to memorize them because he didn't speak English. And then he had to pass the test and he didn't speak English. And it was like tons and tons of work for him to do that. And he wanted to make sure that we saw him in those other newly sworn-in immigrants. And it just, uh, you couldn't help but cry when you just, you would meet the stories of what people had to survive and what they lived through in their countries and the sacrifice they made to get there, how many years they saved. And everybody's right when you keep hearing the same thing from these folks. We have so much. Next up, our second woman from Iran. And, well, what did she love? Especially compared to where she was born or from, about the USA. In Iran, the basic human rights, women's rights, is not exercised. Like, you cannot express your opinion freely and without being worried all the time that there is going to be consequences. I am blessed to be here. I'm so happy there is a place where I could pursue liberty and happiness. Watching the news, people debate, People express their true feeling with no consequences. That, that's, that's the real beauty of America I love. Wow. And here is a woman from Korea. Let me tell you how great this country is. Then, you know, treat me like an equal. Study. You know, see, my country, women is always you are second. Men always come first. So, you know, you see boy born and they celebrate at house they put on a pepper, wet pepper on as a boy. Say girl, nothing. This is the best country. You know, I mean, where I'm gonna have on the house, you know, car, you know, I got two dogs. I mean it's great. Where am I gonna own a house, a car, a dog? It's great. And it is. By the way, when, when, when 
we who've lived here a long time dare to say this is a great country. People look at us like we're jingoistic, like we're far patriots, we're dumb. But by the way, you never dare say anything about these people when they say the country's great. Thank goodness they're allowed to, and I wish more of us would profess this same love of our country, but we just don't have a context. We don't know. Now let's go to a woman from South Africa who just became a U.S. citizen, explaining that sometimes it's a very simple reason, maybe even the most basic reason of all for wanting to become a U.S. citizen. It's not having all these rights, freedom of speech, freedom of this. For me, it's to know I can take my family around the block for a walk in the stroller, and I don't have to be worried about being hijacked. Sometimes you forget that every day is a blessing. You woke up, and it's a gift. You woke up, and it's a gift. And next is a man from Nigeria who is now an Olympian for America. I came from Africa, and... Africa, like my dad, I use him as an example. He walked through all his life and died without even having a house to his name. But in America, the story is different. I came here to the United States about seven years ago, and within seven years, I got two degrees. I got an undergraduate degree, and I got my MBA. This is not something that happens so easy every other place. I'm a Paralympian. I see I have a paralyzed left leg. And for the past seven, eight years that I've been here, I've been holding the U.S. record. Now I can say it comfortably that I'm the U.S. record holder in short put and discuss. I think Americans need to go out and see what's happening in real life. You have to go out to be humbled. When you go out and you, have to, you don't know where your next square meal was going to come, or you see your neighbor starving or dying or couldn't afford a basic necessity, like drinking water, then when they come back here, they are going to appreciate what God has given them. You have to go out and be humbled and then appreciate what God has given us. Next and finally, let's hear from people who break the mold of what many folks typically think of when they think about immigrants. This is the only country where you can come with $100 in your pocket and get a PhD in nuclear engineering. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I'm actually a nuclear chemist. And I started working with the Salamos National Laboratory. It's a famous nuclear weapons laboratory. You're going to solve tuberculosis and you're going to solve HIV. HIV yeah, develop a vaccine against HIV AIDS, yeah. My main goal is like to be self-sufficient. Okay? I don't want handouts. I'm contributing to America. I'm contributing my skills, my talent. So America needs me. America needs me. We do. We do. Anybody who's going to say what he just said, we need 10 million of you. I want to be self-sufficient. My goodness, don't we want our kids to say that? Everybody to say that? Next up, one of my favorite citizenship stories from one of my favorite people. Few immigrants have proclaimed their love for America and her freedoms more beautifully than film director Frank Capra. Few had more humble beginnings. Born in Sicily, he immigrated to the United States in 1903 with his parents. His father picked grapes. After a short stint in college studying engineering, he served in the Army during World War I, then began an unlikely journey into the film business. He started as a grip, got to know some writers, started hanging around in cafes, and got this crazy idea that maybe he could be a script writer. And soon enough, it started. It happened one night was his first big break. He got an Oscar. More Oscars to come in 36. Mr. Deed goes to town. 
1938, another for You Can't Take It With You. Three Oscars, and then something strange happens. He decides, along with two other great directors, Stevens and Ford, to drop their careers, fly in planes in World War II battlefields, risk their lives, and film World War II propaganda films for this country. It was the Why We Fight series. Seven parts to keep the spirits up at home. It changed the country, and his proudest honor, as he would say many times over, was receiving the Medal of Honor on the art side from the President of the United States. And when we come back, we're going to hear these clips from Frank Capra, a story he told at the American Film Institute when he won the Lifetime Achievement Award. He didn't want to talk about the movies. He wanted to talk about his country. It allowed him to make those movies. More after these messages. This is our American Stories, our special July 4th celebration, and now it's time for those Frank Capra clips we promised. And we were at the American Film Institute again, it's 1981. He decided that rather than talk about the movie business, he would talk about the country he loved, the country that adopted his father, an immigrant who did not speak English, but allowed the next generation to accomplish remarkable things. And so here's Frank Capra. Every celebrity is there. You can see Betty Davis in the front row sitting next to Bob Hope. And he's telling this story about the country, telling the story about when he came over on this tiny, cramped, creeping ship. Nearly 79 years ago, I celebrated my sixth birthday in the black, dark hole of a creaking ship crammed with wretching, praying, terrorized immigrants. 13 days of misery. And then the ship stopped. And my father grabbed me and carried me up the steep iron stairs to the deck. And then he shouted, Chico, look at that. At first, all I saw was a deck full of people on their knees, crying and rejoicing. My father cried, that's the greatest light since the star of Bethlehem. I looked up. And there was the statue of a great lady, taller than the church steeple, holding a lamp over the land we were about to enter. And my father said, it's the light of freedom, Chico. Remember that. Freedom. And Capra continued, and by now there wasn't a dry eye in the house. In fact, if you go to AFI's website, 
you'll see Hope and Davis crying. Here's how Capra completed things. He was pointing up to the sky to his deceased siblings and family. And he was talking to them. Finally, there is something I must say to some other members of my family. And I believe that they will hear me. Mama, Papa, Big Brother Ben, Josephine, Tony, Little Sister Anne. Remember the day we arrived at the Southern Pacific Station here in Los Angeles? And Papa and Mama kissed the ground? Look, the American Film Institute has given me its Life Achievement Award. And for that, I am thanking them and all my friends who have come here. But for America, just for living here, I kiss the ground. Thank you very much. And again, go to AFI's website and watch that entire speech because it is something. And now we're shifting to a report. Alex filed some time ago about a naturalization ceremony he attended. And then, well, he felt compelled to do this report. As America's newest citizens, it is certainly an honor and a distinct privilege to be among the first to greet you as a fellow American. Today is your day. It's a day of celebration of you as inspiring men and women and the remarkable journeys that have brought all of you together on this day. It was just over two months ago and the room was electric. It's still electric in my mind. Her joy and all of their joy, their love of America, was barely contained within the room's four walls. I was, of course, there because she's my wife. Her name is Kate, and she was born in England. But I was also there because I'm an American, an American who's always wanted to witness the creation of new Americans. Now, as has been our tradition, I would ask that we all stand, especially including all of the new citizens, and that we pledge allegiance to your new flag. And it didn't disappoint. More on that later. Meanwhile, in other parts of America, you hear things like this. That was American pop star Ariana Grande. Not God bless America, God damn America. And that was an American pastor. Do most Americans share these sentiments? Of course not. According to a 2015 Gallup poll assessing national pride, 81% of Americans are extremely or very proud of their country. Only 19% claim to be either moderately proud, only a little proud, or not proud at all. 19% too many, but a 19% that largely exists because of a media that trashes America and refuses to recognize its virtues. Here's NBC's Chris Collingsworth asking Kobe Bryant about playing on the Olympic basketball team. Is that a cool thing to say in this day and age that you love your country and that you're fighting for the red, white, and blue and it seems like sort of a day gone by? 
Collinsworth thinks he's too cool to love America. But is Kobe? No, it's a cool thing for me to say. You know, I feel I feel great about it. And uh, I'm not ashamed to say it. This is a tremendous honor. In addition to the work of an all-too-intentional media, there's likely an unintentional reason. Human nature. We're forgetful. Ask my wife and you'll hear that I'm very forgetful. And she's right. In the craziness of our daily lives and pressures, we forget to pause. To pause and remember how fortunate we are. To live in the greatest country in human history. A country with freedom at its foundation. It's why we need Freedom Day. And I hear, I hear a lot of people, I hear a lot of people, usually native-born Americans, I have to tell you, usually the children of the wealthy, who say, you know, with the, America sucks, man, we, we totally suck, we suck. And I'm thinking, you know what, Junior, you know why you're talking like that? Because you haven't traveled enough. Do what I did. Put on your little backpack and travel around Europe, check out the competition, see how much we suck. That was Scottish-born comedian Craig Ferguson, who became a naturalized citizen in 2007. And thankfully, you don't need to travel to Europe to be reminded how fortunate we are. Participate in Freedom Day. Attend a naturalization ceremony here in America, like the one I attended in Memphis the other day. As the hundreds of immigrants waited to enter the room where they would become new Americans, I asked them what this moment meant to them. Here's Alan M. Pueda, born of the socialist nation of Venezuela. I love America because, uh, you know, I'll say because of its freedom. But, you know, people don't see it that way here. Um, back in our countries, though, you know, we don't get the same type of freedoms that we get in the U.S. And that's what I love about this country. You know, this country welcomed me with open arms and I'm, I'm loving it. And then I bumped into one of the lost boys of Sudan, the 30,000 young boys from South Sudan who were forced to flee their home without their parents, when the Islamic militants in North Sudan violently attacked their villages, with the intentional strategy of killing off all the boys so they wouldn't have to face them when they became adults. Out of the 30,000, only 11,000 survived, the rest killed by militants and by the wild, most often lions and crocodiles. But here's the survivor, a new American citizen I met, Mayut Duke. To me, it's, it's my second home, and it's, uh, it's theme to me that uh, without uh, coming to the United States, I should not be alive today. Wow, saying that he owes being alive to our nation. Immigrants like Alan and Mayu bring new life to America, bringing with them their talents, their passions, and most importantly, their passion for America, their passion for our freedom, helping us remember what a gift America and her freedoms truly are. I've long believed in what makes this country so great and admired the fundamental values of America, but to now be a citizen and be able to vote and partake in what makes America the greatest country in the world, just it just means everything to me. That was my wife, Kate Cortez. In reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great peace as Alex and Greg is always doing such good work. And Stan who's new to our crew, uh, he has an experience. Uh, Stan, when did you uh, take your oath of allegiance? About a dozen years ago. It was in, uh, it was in Chicago, and, and just hearing Alex's piece you know, brings back those memories. And, um, it, was, it was a couple of years after high school, and I remember thinking, you know, every, every other nationality, it's, it's tied to your blood, it's tied to your land, it's tied to your lineage. Here, yes, we have a legal process, but it's tied to ideas. 
and, and, and because I was just fresh out of high school, I, I remember thinking back then, and I'm revisiting the idea, wouldn't it be neat if somewhere after driver's ed, you know, somewhere around high school civics, if we just asked native-born Americans, you've read this, you've studied this, do you want in? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not talking about earning it. I'm just saying a simple question. You know, would you like to opt in? Are you interested? And where were you from? I'm fr- I was born in China. Well, folks, I want to read this. When he says "in," let me read it as we close out the oath of allegiance. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Not a bad idea, Stan. This is our American Stories, celebrating July 4th. Thank you, and have a blessed one.